Well, first of all, I want to say happy anniversary to my wife. Take the opportunity to do that, 12 years together, so that's awesome. I think back to year one, I almost, no joke, almost died in the hospital. My appendix blew up inside of me. I was in the hospital for a week with a tube coming out of my stomach. That was a good time. And then um, we were on the five-year plan for having children, and the Lord was on the five-month plan. So uh, I just took communion, sitting next to my almost 11-year-old over there, and uh, we... Uh, are thankful that our lives have brought us to Seaford and that we're here at Seaford Baptist. And uh, the only part about our marriage that I regret is that none of you got to come to our weddings. You didn't know us yet. But, um, you know, if we ever renew the vows or something, we'll invite you, okay? Um, people are fascinated by heaven. They are fascinated by the idea of heaven. Uh, I threw out a Pew Research poll last week. I'll throw out another one this week. It says 73% of Americans believe in heaven. So America is becoming less religious, for sure, certainly less Christian, yet uh, Americans believe in heaven as much as they ever have. They'll let go of the virgin birth, they'll let go of the biblical account of creation. These are things that uh, our culture is, is saying, we don't need that anymore. But when it comes to heaven, they are not ready to let go. And what that tells us is that heaven is important to the American mind. In fact, I would say that more people ask me questions about heaven than any other subject as a pastor. Uh, you think about all the things pastors get asked, nobody asks me anything or any more questions than they do about the doctrine of heaven. Uh, will we know each other when we get to heaven? And how old are we going to be in heaven? Uh, children who passed away in childhood, will they be grown adults in heaven? Are we going to be able to look down on the earth? Is my dog going to be there? Like, these are serious questions that people have about heaven. And if you notice, all those questions really have to do with how much is heaven going to be like earth? That's what people want to know a lot. How much is heaven going to reflect uh, this life that we live? How much, of is, uh, how much of a connection is there between this life and the next? And Jesus' teaching helps us with uh, that question this morning. Last week we saw the scribes and the chief priests questioning Jesus about whether or not it is right in the eyes of God to pay taxes to Caesar. And they thought if they could get Jesus to answer this question wrongly, they could label him as an insurrectionist. They could turn him over to the Roman authorities and have him executed. Uh, this week, Jesus is still in the temple, but it's not the scribes and the Pharisees trying to invalidate him. This time, it is another party, another group. It's the Sadducees. So I'll start reading for us in uh, Luke 20, verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who denied that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. 
In verse 27, we see that the Sadducees have come to, to see Jesus. And these, uh, these guys are they're not as prevalent in the book of Luke as the scribes and the Pharisees. The main opposition for Jesus in Luke has been the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers that run around with them. But now we have the Sadducees, and they're, they're pretty different from the Pharisees. Uh, theologically, they were in some ways conservative and in some ways liberal, but very different from uh, the Pharisees. They rejected the oral tradition of the Pharisees. When it came to the Bible, they only counted Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as authoritative books on the Bible. So when it came to like Jeremiah and Isaiah and even the Psalms, they didn't really trust it. They did not believe in an afterlife. No heaven, no hell. Which, if you have ever taught kids about Sadducees, maybe you said that's why they are sad, you see, because they don't believe in heaven. So it's, that is an easy way to remember it, uh, silly as it may be. They also did not believe in angels or demons, and as Luke make notes of, uh, makes note of in verse 27, they do not believe in uh, resurrection. Uh, the, the synagogue and, and the Pharisees in the synagogue, they would have taught that uh, after you die, uh, you will be resurrected to paradise uh, with God, but the, uh, the Sadducees rejected this. The Pharisees actually had a lot in common with Jesus which makes it all the more frustrating that they were always fighting with Jesus because they were so close to the truth, yet they were so far away. The Sadducees are from different sides of the religious tracts uh, all together. They are from the opposite side of the theological spectrum from Jesus, and they really think they've caught him here. They think they have come up with a question that will make him look like a fool, and it will put this issue of the doctrine of resurrection to bed once and for all. And of course, they have a financial interest in this. They didn't just show up and say, let's best this guy so that we can walk around and puff our chests out and act like we are the best of religious men. Uh, instead, they have a financial interest. They ran multiple lucrative businesses in the temple complex. So when Jesus comes and causes a disruption uh, by flipping over the tables and, and, and halting the line of animals that was coming through the temple, uh, when Jesus comes and he starts holding court and teaching differently from the religious establishment in the temple, then they want him out because the disruption is hurting their wallets. So if they can shut him down with this question, not only do they feel like they have have won a debate, but they can get back to making their money. So, here's the question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offering for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. The question has to do with the practice of leveret marriage, which is practiced according to Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 5, says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So the main point of leveret marriage was for the brother's name to be carried on through the offspring of uh, his brother and his wife. 
In our American 2022 minds, this is bonkers, right? We're like, this, you, you can't, that's not the way, that's not society. That's not the way that we're supposed to function. This is no good. Um, but in reality, not only was it normal in Hebrew culture, that is normal in most parts of the world today. Um, so as, as Americans, we're actually outliers. In, in much of the world today, the, the practice of leveret marriage, it, it carries on. So the Sadducees create this ridiculous hypothetical where a woman marries a man and he dies and there's no offspring, so she marries the brother. And then the brother dies and so she marries the next brother. And then the brother dies and she marries the next brother. And she just goes through all seven. And the Sadducees take this hypothetical and they lay it before Jesus and they say, so after the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be in heaven? And they think this is brilliant. Even though the hypothetical might be ridiculous, they think, surely we have stumped Jesus here. She can't be married to all seven of them in heaven. And yet she was married to all seven on earth. And for them, this just showed how there can be no connection between this life and what is to come. In fact, they felt that nothing was to come. And if they could bring the whole doctrine to the ground with this one hypothetical, then surely the doctrine is not biblical. And they're hoping Jesus will say, you're right, and then they can puff their chests out, and then he will leave, and they can get back to their industry of religion. Of course, that's not how it's going to play out. Jesus responds and says, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. I think the most important thing in terms of being able to understand this passage is to point out that Jesus says the sons of this age. The sons of this age. Now the reason that is so important Uh, when he says the sons of this age in verse 34, is because he's obviously assuming there is another age. If it's the sons of this age, then he is meaning that there is another age. There's the present age. There is an age that has not yet arrived. To see time in this way, to see time uh, in, in two ages, was a very Jewish way to think, unless you were a Sadducee. And you see that in the New Testament. Jesus certainly thought this way. In Matthew 12, verse 32, uh, he says, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So there's two ages for Jesus. In Ephesians 1.21, Paul is talking about Jesus' name, and he says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So for Paul, there's two ages. But the Sadducees looked at history and time and future, and they saw everything in terms of one age. There is the present age with all of its history and all of its future, but at some point that age ends, and there is no heaven to come afterwards, there is no hell to come afterwards, there is no resurrection. And the question they pose to Jesus here shows not only that they didn't understand the concept of two ages, But they didn't understand the scriptures, which is why they didn't understand the concept of two ages. They were way off in their understanding of the Bible. In fact, in Matthew's account of this interaction with the Sadducees, he includes a rebuke from Jesus before he jumps into his response. Matthew 22, verse 28, In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you, neither, uh, you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. 
The scriptures teach us correctly on the issue of two ages. And on the issue of marriage, the scriptures teach us correctly. And on the issue of resurrection, the scriptures teach us correctly. But the Sadducees didn't understand the scriptures, so that means they swing and miss badly on all three. They don't understand the power of God, so they swing and miss badly on all three. So let's go through these issues that they're misunderstanding. Let's just start with marriage. We know they've gotten two ages wrong. They've gotten marriage wrong too. Let's go there. The Bible gives us two main reasons for marriage. Multiplication and proclamation. Those are the two reasons for marriage in the Bible. Multiplication and proclamation. So, multiplication-wise, marriage is the institution that God uses to multiply the population of humanity. That's His design. Do human beings always function within that design? No, they don't. But his design is for a man to leave his father and mother, a woman to leave her father and mother, and for them to cleave to one another, and then to multiply by filling the earth. Once people have died, and they have resurrected to eternal life as believers, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, they will never die again. And if there is no death in the age to come, then there is no more need for multiplication in the age to come. In Ephesians 5, you get a second uh, purpose for marriage. It is proclamation. Paul says that in a marriage, the husband represents Christ, and he is to love his wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. The wife represents the church, and she is to submit to her husband and honor her husband and respect her husband the way the church submits to Christ and honors Christ and reveres Christ. And Paul says in Ephesians 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul lays out the roles that men and women are to play in the the marriage home, and then he says this is about something more than just the man and wife. This is about Jesus and his church. So that tells us that marriage is not just for multiplication, but it also exists to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And when a man and a woman are living out their roles faithfully, the marriage becomes a living sermon that points to Jesus. But once believers have died, once believers have resurrected to eternal life, there's no more need for that witness. Everybody in heaven is going to be saved. No more need for evangelizing. And what that means is with the close of this age, the purpose of marriage also draws to a close. And that's why Jesus says what he says in verses 35 and 36. But the lack of understanding of the scriptures is keeping the Sadducees from understanding these things. They don't understand the age to come, and they certainly don't understand the meaning of marriage, and their question reveals this. And Jesus' response is not complicated, right? He simply says, "Uh, guys, there's no marriage in heaven. Well, if she was married to this guy, and then this guy, and then this guy, and whose wife is she going to be? We got you. Actually, there's just no marriage in heaven. The point of marriage is over at that point. If you understood the scriptures and the power of God, you would know these things. So they think they have this complex question that's so weighty, it's going to cause Jesus' entire theology to come tumbling down. But in reality, it's just a question that exposed their own ignorance. And then Jesus references Moses to correct their misunderstanding about resurrection. He references Moses before the burning bush. And in that scene, Moses wrote down God's own words about himself. 
And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. That's from Exodus 3, verse 6. And so Jesus quotes this. And he says to them, we know the dead are raised because of this scene with Moses at the bush. It's brilliant from Jesus. First of all, he's shown the Old Testament teaches resurrection because God does not say to Moses, I was the God of your father Abraham and your father Isaac and your father Jacob, but they died on me. They died on me, and so I'm not their God anymore. Now I'm your God, Moses. That's not what he says. He says, I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham. Abraham and all the other patriarchs have died at this point, right? Genesis ends with all of them in coffins, right? They've all died. So why didn't God speak in the past tense? Well, because we know that death did not end the existence of those men. By faith, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. Therefore, they have eternal life. And when God speaks of them to Moses, he speaks of them in the present tense because as much as Moses stood in the presence of God before that bush, those men were standing in the presence of God around his throne, just as they are this morning. He is the God of Abraham, and he is the God of Isaac, and he is the God of Jacob right now, just as he was in the day of Moses. So it's brilliant from Jesus to use this text to show them that there is indeed resurrection. There was resurrection for Abraham and for Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs of Israel. But it's also brilliant because he quotes from Exodus. Because he knows you guys don't believe in in the other, you know, 34 books of the Old Testament. I know you reject them, so I'll quote from one of the five that you accept. You say it's authoritative. Well, I've shown you from the word that you say is authoritative that resurrection is real. Jesus has so expertly rebuffed their question that even some of the scribes who were arguing with him, remember back in 20 verse 19 last week, they're the ones that showed up saying, so is it right to pay taxes or not, Jesus? Trying to catch him in a question, trying to harm him. Even those guys, at the end of this passage, after Jesus answers, uh, they go basically, yeah, good answer, teacher. (laughs) They're like, it's good, right? Look at uh, in verse 39. Some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. Even the scribes were like, yeah, that's good preaching. That's good. We can't argue with that. He shut the, the, the Sadducees, we've been trying to shut them down for years. He shut them down better than we ever could have. And then in verse 40, they all just decide to let it rest. Nobody does, is going to dare to ask him anything else. After the way he so easily dispatched of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees with the best questions they could come up with, why would anybody try? I think this passage gives us plenty of space to make a number of applications, but I I really just want to spend the rest of our time this morning focusing on the idea of the present age and the age to come. This is where the Sadducees went wrong. Right? Before they went wrong with marriage, before they went wrong with the resurrection, they went wrong in their entire view of history. They didn't understand that the Word of God makes it clear that there is a life now and there is a life to come. They missed that. They had an atheistic view of what happens after you die. They had an atheistic view that said there's nothing beyond the grave. I would guess most of you don't agree with them because we've already established this morning that 73% of Americans believe in heaven. I'd like to think that number goes up when you're sitting in a church on a Sunday morning. You know what I mean? 
So I'm not going to spend a bunch of my time trying to convince you that heaven's real, probably not necessary, but I do think Jesus' response here gives us the opportunity to talk about the connection, the relationship between the present age and the age to come, and it's important that we understand that connection because it impacts how we live in the here and now. There's a couple of ways I think we tend to err when we think about the present age and the age to come. We either think heaven will be just like earth, which the Sadducees made that mistake in whatever um, made-up version of heaven that they had in their minds, or we want earth to be just like heaven. I, I think those are the two errors you see Christians kind of wandering off into. Either we want heaven to be just like earth, or we want earth to be just like heaven. You stray into either of those errors, it's going to have a devastating impact on the way that we see life and the way we see the world. So, two warnings for us this morning. Number one, don't fall into the trap of thinking that the age to come is only good if it's like the present age. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that the age to come is only good if it is like this present age. There is going to be continuity between this age and the age to come. We're going to worship God in heaven and on the new earth. We will serve God. We will learn more about God there. We will fellowship with the great multitude of saints who will also be there. And yet, those are all things that we do now, right, on earth. Uh, in, in this age, we worship God and serve God, and we learn more about God and fellowship with other saints who love the Lord. In fact, we've all been doing all of those things together this morning. And so, there's continuity between this age and the age to come because we're going to be doing all of these things for eternity, but we'll do them in purity because no longer are we going to be battling in our flesh with sin anymore. That battle is going to be done. That waging war will be over, and we will be able to just purely worship God and serve God and, and, and learn at His feet and, and, and to fellowship with others without sin tainting it. It's going to be wonderful. So there will be continuity, but from Jesus' words in in this passage, we can see that there's also a distinction, that it's going to be different. For example, the institution of marriage as we know it will no longer exist. Hard for some to comprehend. I've done two weddings in the last three weeks. I would imagine that those two couples would go, well, I kind of would like to carry this on forever, you know what I mean? Because there's that freshness and there's that excitement of the new marriage. Whenever I'm doing premarital counseling with people, one of the first things I say to them is, this is not forever. It is for a lifetime. There may come a time in which that is great news to your ears. You know what I mean? But this isn't forever. But some of us really love this life. Some of you, you're like, I'm glad all this isn't forever. And I'm not talking about marriage. I mean, you're just like, I'm glad that my life is not forever. I, I'm looking forward to glory. Some of you, you're like, I kind of want to hold on to all this. I love my friends, I love my spouse, I love my family, I love this life. I want to continue this thing on, I want to carry it on. Some of you are actually this morning sitting without your spouse. Your husband or your wife has passed away, they're with Jesus this morning. They've gone on to be with him. And it's hard for you to imagine that you're going to get there and you're going to be reunited to them and you're not going to be married anymore. And so maybe this idea that heaven won't be just like earth and there won't be marriage between man and woman, maybe that upsets you on some level. And maybe this discussion prompts a host of questions like the ones uh, I mentioned at the start today. Are we going to know each other in heaven? How old are we going to be in heaven? Or how young are we going to be in heaven? 
Will we be able to see what's happening on earth until Jesus returns and establishes the new earth? Will we be able to look down and see what is going on? And, and listen, when it comes to that speculation, I think we should be careful. Where God's word goes silent, I think that we should maybe let our speculation end and just accept the facts that he gives us from his word about eternity and to trust him. We need to trust the Lord when it comes to heaven. He has given us enough of a picture of the age to come in the Scriptures to have faith and to trust that His eternal reward is going to be better than even the most joyful moments that we have in this life. We have to trust that there's nothing that you enjoy to the glory of God in this life that you're going to lack in the next. You have to trust that God will take the pure things that you love in this age and give them to you in the age to come. The only difference being that in a world with no sin, no pain, no separation from God, we can enjoy all of those blessings of God without filter, without any walls. And as we experience the blessings of God, we experience them in full. It will be even better than the way we experience them now. So let's just take this idea of marriage again in the age to come. Let's say you do have a hard time with this concept of no marriage in heaven. Consider this quote from R.C. Sproul who says, Male and femaleness will move to a completely different level in glory. A level that is greater and more wonderful than what we now experience. So can you trust God with that? Can you trust God that His eternal plan for men and women in glory is even better than the marriage plan He had for us in this present age? And if we do trust God in this way, won't that impact how we live in this life, not just in the life to come? If I believe, if I trust that God will faithfully reward me in the age to come, then how much more willing, how much more likely am I going to be to seek His kingdom first? How much more likely will I be to endure through suffering? How much more likely will I be to pray for Jesus to return? So the more we trust in God for the age to come, the more we will hope in the age to come. The more we trust in God for glory, the more we will hope in glory. And the more that we're hoping in glory, the more we're growing in Christ and becoming like Him. So that's warning number one. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that the age to come is only good if it is like this present age. But number two, don't fall into the trap of thinking that the present age should be just like the age to come. And what you could say is this is a warning against what I'll call over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end times. Over-realized eschatology is when somebody wants all the blessings of the age to come now. When somebody wants the reality of heaven now. And I would say this is the common error of those who follow the teachings of prosperity gospel teachers. Listen, what the prosperity gospel offers to you is a life with no suffering, a life with no poverty, a life with no opposition, a life that only knows victorious mountaintops and knows nothing of the valleys, right? That's the life that the prosperity gospel teacher offers to you if you have enough faith and maybe give enough money. You know what I mean? None of that's bad. A life with no suffering is not a wrong thing to desire. A, a, a life with no poverty is not a wrong thing to desire. A life with no opposition. A life that only knows victory. It's, it's not a bad life to want if you recognize it's the life to come, not the life you have now. It's the age to come. 
One of the most famous prosperity gospel books is Joel Osteen's Your Best Life Now. The title of the book might as well be Overrealized Eschatology by Joel Osteen. Because the only way you can have your best life now is if you're going to spend your eternity in hell. Think about it. If you are going to heaven forever, your best life is definitively not now. It's later. And to act as if the present age is not filled with the results of Adam's sin in the garden is just ignorant. His sin brought death into the world, and ever since, suffering has been a part of the human experience. So when you work, the ground fights back, and your brow sweats. You try to love people, sometimes they hurt you. You try to take care of your body and do the right things, and yet your body still fails you. To be human is to experience the brokenness that sin has brought into the world. Sometimes it is your own sin, and you deal with the fallout and the consequences of it. Sometimes, unfortunately, we deal with the fallout and the consequences of other people's sin. But there's not a day that goes by in which we don't feel the results of Adam's rebellion against God in the garden. And you know what? The one that the Sadducees are questioning here, Jesus, has come to fix all of that. He has come to reverse the curse of sin. He has come to undo death for His people. So they can have abundant life. The life that God has always designed for them. So if you repent of your sin, if you agree with God about the, the nature of your sin, that it is evil, that it is, it is an offense to Him, and if you turn away from it and you turn to Christ in faith for salvation, trusting in His death for you on the cross where He was a substitute who paid for your sins in your place, trusting in the resurrection where He rose from the grave to defeat our sin and to defeat our death, then we will be forgiven and we will receive eternal life. And there are aspects of that eternal life that you do taste in this age. But so much of the reward is also not yet. We taste it now, but later we're fully going to drink. Paul said it this way to the Corinthians, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We're going to fully know God the way that He fully knows us. But that is still to come. In this age, we know in part, we look forward to the fullness. Don't make the mistake of wanting all of that now. And in the process, you run from trials and you run from tribulations that God actually wants to use to mature you. Because that's the thing. God will take all of the suffering we experience in this life and He will use it to conform us to the image of His beloved Son. Romans 5, verses 3-5 through 5 says this, when Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. An overrealized eschatology doesn't rejoice in suffering, it runs from it. And in running from the suffering, you're, you, you end up running from sanctification. Because God wants to use the suffering to work sin out of our lives. But if we expect earth to look like heaven, we're not signing up for that. And when you run from the suffering, do you know who you're going to run to? It's not God. He was waiting for you in the suffering. You end up running to some deaf, mute, blind idol that has no power to help your life. 
and you will bow down to it in rebellion. And that is the end result for so many that get duped by the prosperity gospel nonsense. We need to do with those idols what Moses did with the golden calf. He showed up and he burnt it. And then if you read the text, he scatters the ash into the water and he says, and now you're all going to drink it. I'm not saying we need to drink the, the, the burnt dust of our idols, but we do need to burn them. We need to set them on fire. Let me bring this home. Let me put a bow on it. To do it, let's go to the end of the book, to Revelation. By the way, June 29th, we start our Wednesday night Revelation series. I just want to get that plug in there as I get ready to read. It's a brilliant passage. Revelation 19, starting in verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The bride of Christ is the church. The Lamb is Jesus. He's the bridegroom. So you know what this tells us? While the, the, the sons of this age will not be married and given in marriage in the next age, there will be one marriage in heaven. The one marriage in heaven will be between Christ and his church. And in order to win his bride, he had to die for her. And in order to receive his love, we must repent and trust in him. And that is the covenant of the gospel. And in that covenant, the great marriage that all the other marriages were, were, were pointing to is found. And you want to be at that supper. You want to be the bride of Christ. You want to be the object of the affection of God's Son for all of eternity. You want the hope of the age to come, but it's only yours by faith in Christ. You must believe. And that is made clear from Luke 20. Let's go real fast. Look at verse 35. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age. How could you ever, ever be worthy to inherit eternal life? Well, on your own, you never could be. You could never be worthy. And so you must repent and trust in the worthy one who came and he died in your place and he took the punishment for your sin. And when we repent and when we trust in Christ, he makes us worthy. He covers us in his righteousness. He gives us spiritual clothes fitting for his marriage table. And so the, the band and choir are going to come right now. And as they return to the stage, I want to ask that question. Are you worthy? If you have no relationship with Jesus, the answer to your question is no. No.